catchy title and thinking of a, a Yankee at King Arthur's Court, um, or Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court, I thought of the English Episcopalian at Baylor. Um, because, um, as I said, in my, those of you who were here in my last session, I, I grew up, I grew up in the, in the non-conformist tradition and, and certainly have that background. And uh, so I feel like I have a foot in both camps. And, and uh, you'll hear a little bit about my background as I go through my, my presentation this afternoon. <clears throat> I wanted to, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about a tradition that was a very, very important part of my life from the age of 12 to, to really now, um, but one in which I worked directly, and that's the English cathedral tradition. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I also wanted to call this something to do ecumenical, so I just said, well, this is the ecumenical section. Um, and it's, it's always good, I think, for us to be aware of what's going on in other denominations and, and to work out what, what things we can learn from them. And I think the English cathedral tradition is one that, is one that as I hopefully will point out, there, there are lots of questions and discussions we can have, but I think there are things that, that, things that we can learn from it. So um, I'll try not to read too, too much on, on this, but I've got my, I've got my talk here. Um, and it's just disappeared. So, as I said to you, uh, as I've said before, and I will not repeat this after today, I was born and raised in St Albans, which is 20 miles north of London, and I went to St Albans School, which is founded in the year 948 by monks. The St Albans uh, had one of the most important monasteries in the United Kingdom, or well, wasn't united then in England, and um, it, it, was, it was often competing for importance with Westminster Abbey. Until 130 years ago, the school was the schoolroom was the Lady Chapel of the cathedral, and so the school and the cathedral have a very, very symbiotic link. Um, and the Lady Chapel now still has statues without heads and still has graffiti in the pews from hundreds of years of schoolboys mm. that, that caused that. Uh, and then the school just moved over, the, literally over the road. And twice a week, we were frog-marched into the nave of the cathedral for a service of morning prayer, 650 of us. And the school choir, which I was a part, sang an anthem. The chaplain preached. We all sang a hymn, and then we were ordered back to school for our lessons. <clears throat> I grew up in a Baptist home. The congregation in St. Albans I went to dated from the 1600s, <clears throat> and at 350 members was considered a large church. Now, that, in American terms, is not huge, but in British terms for a Baptist church, that was fairly sizable. At the age of 13, I came, became the church organist for the grand sum of £10 a month, which is about £15. $15. Uh, so I feel I do have a foot in both camps. But gradually, the experience of worship in a huge cathedral, with its wonderful organ and music by Stanford, Bird, and others, burned itself into my soul. By the age of 16, I was an evensong junkie, staying around after school for an hour and a half so that I could hang around in the organ loft and watch the unfolding drama as choristers rehearsed and sang a bewildering amount of music. Uh, then I was asked to play a hymn for evensong. And then I was asked to play for a psalm. And within about six months, they asked me if I played the whole service. So I, uh, it was in the days before organ scholars. And uh, I was de facto organ scholar, I think. So the idea of being a cathedral organist insinuated itself and was not considered an impossible dream by my teachers. Uh, I was very lucky, I, I learned with Stephen Darlington, who's at Christchurch, Oxford now, a very well-known uh, choral conductor. And Stephen encouraged me to, to pursue the dream. I even asked the Dean at St Albans about becoming an Anglican. I told him I felt guilty about leaving the Baptists and I only wanted to be Anglican so that my job applications would be watertight. <laughs> but he, I, I told him I thought it was 30% conviction and 70% politics. He looked at me and just said, that's the perfect means for the Church of England. <laughs> I've always remembered that. I had four wonderful years at Cambridge, um, learning the organ of Nicholas Kinston, who's a very well-known international organist. And I managed to maintain my Baptist connections. I met several members of the faculty from Southwest Seminary, 
Cecil Roper, David Keith, and Jack Coldine, who's now teaching here, were still good friends of mine. And uh, I, in the 80s, I played at the seminary, and I gave recitals in Waxahachie, in Ennis, and in Temple, just south of here. My first drive was from, to Waco, so I, it was nice coming back yesterday. I felt coming home. On my return to UK after six weeks here, I was appointed as assistant organist at Chelmsford Cathedral in Essex, which serves the second largest diocese in the Church of England. Um, it, it has five London boroughs, five of the East London boroughs, in it, and 660 parish churches within the diocese. Um, a cathedral that only seats about 700, strangely enough. So a small building, but a huge diocese. And I was there for five years. And then in 1991, I went to St. Columns Cathedral in Derry, Northern Ireland, or London Derry, Northern Ireland, and I was in charge of that show. And I inherited a fairly, uh, a fairly run-down situation, and hopefully by the time I left, it was a little less run-down. Northern Ireland was an extremely exciting place to be in the 90s with the peace process and everything else that was going on. That's a whole other talk, which is not for them. Um, so at both of these cathedrals, I work closely with a choir of men and boys in what is known as the English cathedral tradition. It's a unique heritage and one that's envied and admired all over the world. It's still a vital part of the cultural life of the United Kingdom. However, I, I ask, I would, as I was thinking about this, I was asking what its relevance is to what we do as musicians in our churches here and what can it teach us about our ministries. So firstly, what is the cathedral tradition? The English church has always prided itself on a degree of independence. The Magna Carta proclaimed the right to appoint bishops um, over, the, over Rome, and Henry VIII had a certain amount to say about the matter himself. Um, cathedrals, some of which were monastic, were powerful institutions, second only to the court. Wealth very, and colleges, they were very wealthy due to endowments. Someone would die and would leave money for chantry for a mass to be said every day for their soul. And they would pay the money for a priest to say that mass. And often singing was involved. If a priest didn't want to be there, he would engage a deputy, and sometimes would engage a non-ordained deputy who could do the singing. Uh, the deputy was known as a clerk. If they were non-ordained, they were known as lay clerks. And so the term lay clerks, which is used for the gentlemen of the cathedral choir, comes from that, that history. It's a, it's a very, very ancient tradition nearly a thousand years old. Um, the art of composition developed and church music became more complicated during the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries, so the, the expertise of the singers required became more and more. And uh, choral foundations were established, using, often using boys from the locality to provide a top line. Cathedrals would often educate those boys in their own schools, and thus the choirs of men and boys became an established part of English cultural life. By the Tudor period, the premier ensemble in the country was the choir of the Chapel Royal, for whom much of the great polyphony of that period was composed. Many other cathedrals, Lincoln's one that comes to mind when William Byrd was all in his Canterbury, obviously, Westminster Abbey, St Paul's, many of the great cathedrals still had their choral foundations as well. But the Chapel Royal was the, the, the creme de la creme. Anyway, to cut a long story short, these choirs have survived through good times and bad. I think the 19th century, by all accounts, was a fairly low time. 18th and 19th centuries were low times in terms of standards. And composers such as John Stainer, or cathedral organists like John Stainer, S.S. Wesley, and Stanford, were at the forefront of resurrecting some respectability. Wesley complained bitterly of arriving in Hereford and only having one choir man, who was the dean's butler. Um, having set a voice, and he wrote a wonderful letter that he said, you know, you come to a cathedral, and they'll tell you that the choir is the best in England, and you don't need to do anything to it. And I'm sure we've all had that experience of going to a church and being told, well, you know, it's wonderful here, that choir is the best in the city. And, um, you know, we all have sometimes an inflated version of where, what we, where we were. That's by the way. Anyway, as recently as the 1960s, standards weren't uniform across the country. There was some stellar work being done by uh, an organist called Stanley Van at Peterborough. Uh, and King's College Cambridge was, the, was one of the, the high points. Boris Orr 
who wrote that setting of Adam and Eve bound and what we all know at Christmas. Boris Ord was the organist there and uh, really was very, very demanding. He was succeeded by Sir David Wilcox and at that time the explosion of recordings came about and I think the recording revolution has had a lot to do with the rising standards in English cathedral music, which is now probably as high as it's ever been. Um, and cathedral and college choirs are some of the best in the world. A cathedral choir has a fearsome routine. Even song or evening prayer is sung six days a week in many places and often requires four or five choral items every service. You sing a set of responses, a psalm, a magnificat, a nundimitis and an anthem. So that's five pieces which you just have to learn and it's different music nearly every day. Uh, on Sundays, the choir would quite often sing two or even three services. If you have a service of morning prayer and a communion service, that's two services on the Sunday morning, plus an evening song. Um, if you have a choir school, some, many cathedrals have choir schools who, who have the boys there, organise them and get them there. Other cathedrals, such as the two I worked in, didn't have choir schools. And so we had to go and recruit boys and get them volunteered, get the parents on board. In Derry, I saw my choir boys five to six days a week, just as volunteers. It was a tremendous commitment they had, and uh, you know they worked very hard for an hour and a half at a time. Anyway, the choral service of even songs I've just said includes all that music, normally lasting about 45 minutes, starting at five o'clock. Your day doesn't finish till six, and then boys often have homework to do or a soccer game to play because um, boys are boys. A sung Eucharist, the communion, often involves a setting of the Mass as well. There's four movements of the Mass as well as Psalm of the Anathemes. And just a quick word about the role of the cathedral in, in, in public life in Britain. The Church of England is established, which means that it's the state church. Um, it's uh, one of the, I think probably the main reason why that clause exists in the Constitution here, because the founders were anxious to get away from that model. The Queen is the person that has to sign off on all appointment of bishops and deans in cathedrals. And uh, any change in the church law, such as the recent legislation to ordain women as bishops, uh, has to go through Parliament to get approval. So the House of Parliament has to sit and have a debate. Now many MPs actually just sit out of those debates, and just the ones who actually have an interest in the church vote, it still has to be done. Any official occasion is celebrated in the Church of England. All the royal occasions, for example, the Church of England services. A cathedral, particularly a fine medieval building, is a great source of pride to the community and is always used for concerts, graduations and other public events. It's a big public resource. Uh, it's, a, it's a concert hall and a, a church. As well as, as well as being owned by its own worshipping community, now, five o'clock evening song may well be only attended by half a dozen people, despite the excellence of the music. Um, I always used to tell my boys and my choir, it doesn't matter how, how many people were there, because obviously we're giving the worship to God. And also, that there's this, there's this sense that you're offering a prayer on behalf of all the people who aren't there, of all the people who are walking outside on their way home from work. And there's a, there's a degree to which in their subconscious, they're aware that somewhere, somewhere is saying prayer for them. It's supposed to be comforting. So, now the repertoire used is large and varied. Many settings of the Magnificat and Nundimittis exist, and uh, the Magnificat being the Song of Mary that she sang when uh, she was told she was expecting the Christ child, and the Nundimittis, which is the Song of Simeon. Uh, Lord, now let us now thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. And one can draw on the music for a thousand years. Plain song plays a big part in the repertoire of an English cathedral. And quite often you'll, you'll hear a plain song, plain song, a whole even song, plain song. English and Italian polyphony is used, and masses and Mozart and Haydn quite often be sung with orchestral accompaniment, and they all feature. Now that's a very short and very frugal account of a tradition that's over a thousand years old. Uh, there are all sorts of other things that I could mention. I could mention the relatively low pay of the cathedral musician. Um, the cathedral musician's salary has been, again, parliamentary legislation 
20, nearly 20 years ago, tied a cathedral organist's salary to that of the clergyman. So, which was, it's now about £30,000 a year, which is $45,000. Now, there aren't many full-time, I mean, that's, that's in, in the AGO world, that's a, not a very large church, full-time salary. So the organist of Westminster Abbey is probably only, only about 50000 60000 um, in terms of dollars. It's not a beautiful, it's not a generously paid. The English church is much poorer than the American church. There's a very different culture of church going and a very different culture of giving as well. So that helps to explain it. Um, and, and the church music scene in England is also not nearly as healthy as it is here. Uh, it's really the cathedrals are the only places where you can, you can pursue a full-time career as a church musician. It's unfortunate that that's the way it is. Uh, many churches rely on volunteer labour. Uh, it's just part of the, it's, it's how I say, it's a bit part of the culture. Uh, I've lived in, I did live in that tradition for 17 years, however, and I do think we can learn much from it. It raises some fundamental issues for us to talk about. At that point, I think I'm going to play you a piece of uh, cathedral music. Now, YouTube's wonderful. It gives you all sorts of added benefits. This is Stanford's um, Magnificat. Uh, Charles Billy Stanford wrote this one. He wrote, there are several settings by Stanford. There's one in C major, one in A major, one in G major. B flat is very well known. There's one in F, which is less known. And every, every cathedral musician refers to this as the Magnificat. The shorthand is the mag and nunk. So if you ever hear me talk about mag and nunk in my tired moments, then I'm just reverting to shorthand. Short, but obviously magnificent. The point in the service at which this comes is about halfway through. The service consists, an evensong service consists of uh, an opening set of sung responses. O Lord, open now our lips, and our mouth shall proclaim thy praise. Uh, which is the start of it. Then the Psalms of the day are sung. Now all 150 Psalms are divided into 30. And so you, you, you sing the Psalms of the day. And some days you only have one Psalm to sing. The 27th evening of the month, you have about five or six Psalms to sing. Because it goes to all the 120s. And so they divide the Psalter up. So, so a choir boy sings the whole Psalms, the whole book of Psalms every month. It's a wonderful way to know your, know your Bible. Um, I still, I, I mean, every, every choir boy I've known could tell you the psalms mm -hmm. easily uh, because you just you just get to know them and it stays with you all your life. So that's that's one benefit which I, I probably refer to a bit later. Anyway, then comes a lesson, an Old Testament lesson, uh, representing the old the old covenant, and then comes the singing of the Magnificat, which is Mary's greeting of the new covenant. Uh, and then after the first lesson comes the Nunc Dimittis, which is the, the um, I beg your pardon, the first lesson comes before the Magnificat, then Mary, um, Mary's song is, follows that. Then there's a second lesson from the New Testament, which is then followed by the Nunc Dimittis. So we welcome the Old and the New Covenant with, with Scripture and everything else. Uh, and then this say the Apostles' Creed, then there are some sung prayers, and then there's an anthem, and then there's a final hymn. And that. So that's the, that's the basic pattern of the evening song service. The Magnificat and Nuptimittis, I'm, I'm going to tell you a wonderful story. The Magnificat and Nuptimittis usually end up with the same music. They sing Glory Be to the Father, they sing Glory at the end. Um, there was a wonderful story of St. Albans, my home cathedral during the 50s. It was during a broadcast of the evening song, and the, the presiding priest fell asleep during the Gloria of the Magnificat. And uh, not realizing the second lesson was to come, he got up at the end of the Magnificat and started saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Everyone looked at him and said, no. He said very loudly, no, I don't, no, I don't. And then, <laughs> then sat down. So and that's, on, that's on table. So, <laughs> so this, is, this is Stanford's in G. It was written for a solo boy, uh, a solo voice, written with a boy in mind, I'm sure, and the out of basis. This is sung by the choir of St. John's College, Cambridge, which is one of the great choirs. Um, and 
very handily gives you the score to follow. If my technology works, there we go. leads fairly nicely into, into saying that so far all I've talked about is men and boys. 
and there's a whole half of humanity which isn't been left out of this tradition. Um, Twenty years or so ago, the sister of a chorister at Salisbury Cathedral asked the then organist Richard Seale why she couldn't sing in the choir. He said he couldn't come up with an answer that was justifiable, and as a result, he started a girls' choir. There were only two cathedrals at the time, St. Mary's Edinburgh, uh, the Episcopal Cathedral in Edinburgh, and the Cathedral of Bury St. Edmunds in Suffolk, that were using girls in, in the cathedral choir. And I think they had mixed lines, and they had mixed top line. Because altos in the English tradition are counter tenor. They, they use men singing full set. It's, it's a, an adult voice, but a, a really ancient, I think a very beautiful sound. Anyway, there was some reaction, there was quite a lot of reaction to this novel proposal that girls may be able to be cathedral choristers, strangely enough. Only 20 years ago, it seems strange to say that. And I do remember going to meetings of Cathedral Organist Association and having to listen to singers behind a curtain and having to guess whether they were girls or boys. I mean, it was at that level of people having to convince certain people that girls could sing. Uh, I'm happy to say that in the last decade, most cathedrals now have girls' choirs and many are really wonderful girls' choirs that share with the workload with the boys. So the boys aren't singing every day, so some of the girls will take two or so even songs a week and sing a Sunday service, often half, half the work. Um, they quite often will sing with the choir men, the outer stands and basses I just mentioned, and very occasionally they will sing with the boys. The thinking has tended to be against mixing the two lines, and I think there's a, there's a fair amount of um, sense in that. Because my experience, and the experience of others, is that girls and boys mature at very different rates at the age of 9 to 13. Girls being way more intelligent than boys, and um, much brighter. And boys tend to operate in packs much better than, than girls do. And uh, so I think there's a, there's a fair degree of psychology. I also think that boys, boys will be boys, to me, is, has never been better as a phrase to describe the male condition. It's, um, it's, uh, you know, I'm sometimes accused of being a boy myself. So <laughs> it's, uh, boys will be boys is, is really all you need to say. I, I had two choristers in, Derry, in, uh, in Chelmsford. I was taking a choir rehearsal and two choristers got into a fight outside of the choir rehearsal. And one of whom was a real pain in the neck for everything, kept making mistakes. And the head chorister was the one that he got involved in the fight with this other boy. And I told the head chorister off in no uncertain terms of doing the fight. And I asked why he had picked on this boy. And he just looked at me and said, Sir, I ran out of ideas. He could think of no other way to tell this boy that he was making too many mistakes other than just a, a good punch. So there we go. Boys are boys. Anyway, girls, I'm glad to say, have the opportunities now that all the boys have. Because um, they have considerable opportunities. We're a top-class cathedral choir. There's concert work, concert tours, recording work. You sing at major occasions in the life of your city and your town. You learn music to an incredibly high degree of proficiency and many other, um, many other things. Many of the UK's most prominent musicians were choristers. Uh, you will find in their background they, they learn music as a cathedral chorister. In fact, the English cricket captain, which is a game I realise not many Americans know how to play, but the current English cricket captain, which is a big deal in England, was a chorister at St Paul's Cathedral, um, and still talks about it with great fondness. So, here is what I take out of the cathedrals and what I am going to apply to any denomination. First of all, children are capable of amazing things. Choristers are aged, aged 8 to 13 by and large. Boys' careers are determined by their changing voice, and the girls' choirs tend to keep the same ages as the boys. You will find that they try to keep the equivalent. So, um, although girls' voices do tend to mature a bit later, I think, um, but overall they try and keep the ages fairly similar. Children are capable of very disciplined, beautiful singing, and it can be attained without the choir master being an ogre. I have known some ogres. I was subject to one when I was a chorister myself at school, but it can be done if you're nice to them too. 
Through the repertoire, they, a chorister can learn musical theory, can learn singing technique, learns performance skills, listening skills, and intonation skills. And again, to a very high level. And I sometimes get frustrated when we fob our children off with simple repertoire, because that's what we think they can sing. Children love a challenge in my experience. Choristers are not unique people, they're just normal kids. They fight, they chew gum, they answer back, and they, they, uh, they love challenge. So when, we, when we're dealing with children's choirs, let's, let's challenge our children to, to achieve a standard that they don't believe they can get. Something that informs my work with children's choirs, we're just starting the program at St. Mark's. And one of the things I, I keep pushing is, is, is a high standard. If you go to King's College, Cambridge, or indeed go to New York to hear that wonderful choir at St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, which I think is the finest example in the United States of this choir tradition, and, and you sit as a member of the congregation, you will be asked to sit and listen with an occasional stand, and your participation, physical participation, will be limited to the singing of a hymn and a few amens at the end of the prayers. Now this does raise some hackles against those of us or those of us who feel that only by vocal participation are we part of the worship service. Archbishop of Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury between 1942 and 44, had a wonderful phrase. He always talked about listening to music as praying with our ears. And that has long remained one of my favorite phrases, praying with our ears. The theology behind it, or the thinking behind it, is that the choir offers its music on behalf of the congregation who join the worship by silent acclamation. If God needs the best we can give, then our music needs to be the most perfect it can be. And we employ professional and trained musicians to rehearse and learn the music in the same way that we would use a trained CPA to do our taxes, or a fully certified plumber to do our pipes. The beauty of what we hear can impart to us an experience of God that mere words can't. And I'm sure you've all had that experience of listening to music and being transported. Um, you know, this morning was incredibly exciting. Uh, and I'm always slightly, disappointed the wrong word, I'm always slightly envious performing music like that or being part of music like that. I can't sit and listen to it because that was, that was very powerful this morning. Now it's very attractive and a very dangerous proposition that, that we do that. Um, I, I've, I've felt those moments of transcendence by listening to a piece like Stanford in G, um, sung by a perfectly trained choir, but I've also felt great power and been very moved by 600 people singing How Great Thou Art and not a trained singer among them. So my mother would say, horses for courses. It's not either or, it's and. and. I think both have their valid place. And I raise this because it's a charge often leveled at us as musicians anyway, and I'm sure you get it sometimes in your church where you've come across this, that uh, our music becomes a performance rather than uh, an act of worship. And my, my response to that is always that as a musician, I'm very determined that the choir I conduct sings the right notes, with the correct rhythm and the right singing technique. And that my concern as a church musician is to make it possible for other people to hear perfection. Um, now, we very rarely achieve that, but that's why my rehearsals are always pretty rigorous, and mm -hmm. I like my singers to be musically aware, and I pull a face if they make a mistake. And, um, you know, and so, so there's a point at which it has to be a performer. There's an element at which you have to be a performing musician to make, that, to make that possible. And it's a degree of unselfishness to me that I'm not necessarily doing that for my own worship. It becomes my worship, but I'm not doing it primarily so that I can worship. I'm doing it so I can help other people to worship. So occasionally when I have a Sunday off, I will go and sit at the back of the church. And just that's when I can be just Tim Allen and be anonymous, which you can be in a physical church. <laughs> Anyway, there's a degree to which the quality of worship is dependent on those who are worshipping. But it includes those who are leading. It does include those who are leading, but is out of our control. Our congregations every Sunday come with all sorts of issues. Headaches, dead cats, screaming kids, 
and their worship is between them and their God, or them and God, sorry. If we offer the best we can, then we fulfilled our part of the bargain. It's then up to the Holy Spirit to, to work in the, in the spirits of other people. I also find that pleasing everybody is also impossible. <laughs> I also, I do like, and I always liken our job to that of the football team. I used to love watching soccer in England. I have a very strong support of a team called Watford, which is owned by Alfred John. Um, but I'm always very struck when I go to watch a, any sporting picture, a game of baseball, St. Louis Cardinals, or a, a game of football, that the 22 players on the field who are playing the game know exactly what they're doing most of the time, and they play the game. But there are 50,000 people who are just as equally as expert as those 22 mm -hmm. on the sideline, who are, actually have, aren't having to do the work. And they know every time how we could do it better. And, and we're in the same position. We, we, we just have to, and I think that's just part of the job. But the, um, having said that, the congregational theology of a cathedral or choral even song is, is very meditative, and it's essentially very physically passive. I sat in Evensong in King's College, Cambridge, and, and watched, um, and I say this with complete respect, I've watched American tourists get very aggravated and they're told to shush uh, if they start singing psalms or hymns, uh, or hymns, they're announcing hymns, if they start singing quietly, often told just very gently. So it's, it's, a, it's a different ethos, it's one that, it's one that, you know, we can, we, if we have time, we, we can come back to Leon. Um, I don't know how many of you have auditioned choirs as part of your program, but a cathedral choir often includes professional singers in the back rows. The choir of Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's, or the choir men, are fully professional singers who sing in other choirs, often have solo careers. Um, they have a contract that often requires them to be there 80%, I think 80% it's sometimes an alien concept in churches that you may pay singers. Um, several churches I know have section leaders. There's a discussion I'm currently having with my rector, uh, trying to introduce the concept of paid singers. And, um, but I think, again, it, it's all part of this desire for perfection. So how does one get to be a cathedral organist? In my day, and here I sound like an old man, there was a traditional route. It was through an organ scholarship at Oxford or Cambridge. And I was lucky enough to have an organ scholarship at Cambridge. Um, nowadays, it's a little bit more democratic because more universities have organ scholarships. So you find more people in cathedral music who, who haven't simply been to Oxford or Cambridge. But even 20 years ago, it was even 20, 25 years ago, that was the way you got in. Uh, an organ scholarship is basically a cheap labor for you're the college organist, the college choir master. The value of my organ scholarship was set by Sir Charles Wood in 1880. I got the princely sum of 100 pounds a year for um, conducting four even songs a week and other college services and everything else. So it really was, you didn't do it for the money, you did it for the love, which is really good training to be a cathedral organist anyway. Not got, didn't get much more money. The impressive part of the system, however, in Britain, which I think is really impressive, is, um, and, we, and I think we, could, we, we should have this as an aim in our churches, is the system breeds itself. Former choristers and choir girls these days absorb the ethos and music just through osmosis and they perpetuate the system. There are now at least two female cathedral organists, which again was an unheard of. Guildford Cathedral, it's Catherine Deanish, Chichester, as Sarah Baldock, uh, there, are, there are two, two, um, two lady organs, um, for want of a better term. Um, choristers, choristers often end up being prominent classical musicians. One of our choristers at Chelsea was Tim, uh, a countertenor called Tim Mead, who is big, big European countertenor, sings in Handel operas in all, all over the world, um, and so. It really is a very important part of British life, cultural life. The training to be an organist and choir master is not nearly so regimented or disciplined as it is in America either. I had no formal conducting training or choir rehearsal training during my years at Cambridge. I was just thrown in front of a choir and it was sink or swim. And uh, fortunately I was able to swim. 
Um, but I've known several people who did, couldn't take that side of it. Um, I didn't have that, that high training that often is here. I think the uh, system is very admirable here with its attention to detail, but I think there are strengths in both systems as well. Sometimes I've observed occasional lack of what I think is creativity in choir trainers I watch because I see them having clearly using what they've learned, particularly young choir trainers who, who, who haven't yet developed their own, their own styles. But, uh, I think in our programs, we, we really need to think about how we encourage our young directors, our young composers, or our young players. And I'm going to say more about that in the session later this week, about how we, how we make the organ relevant. But uh, I think the training of our young people is very important. There are very few young people who learn the organ. And I think as churches, we have a responsibility to either offer an organ scholarship, to offer a, a gifted young pianist organ lessons, uh, or whatever. I try to do that where, where I am. Now every week, if you go online again, uh, one can hear, and I'll, I'll find this page for you, one can hear the cathedral tradition every week. The BBC broadcasts the core of Evensong on BBC Radio 3 every Wednesday. At, uh, it's 10 o'clock our time, it's 4 o'clock British time. Uh, one hears the current repertoire, and one can get an idea of the music being performed. If Go to bbc.co.uk and go to the radio tab. Oh, there's a look. There. Um, and find Radio 3, which is the classical music station in the UK. And it's not going to come up because the system's working. There we go. Find the station and radio three. Um, search for Core and Eden Song. Core La Eden. This is one of the longest running radio series in the world. It's been going for about 67 years. And every, um, every week it's brought. I was, I was privileged enough and lucky enough to play for 11 of them in my five years at Chelsea. It's a very nerve wracking experience um, because you know that it's normally on Wednesdays, which is a cathedral day on quite often, and you know that every uh, You know that every other cathedral organist is listening to. I haven't heard this one yet, so I'm just going to see if there's any chance of anything. I don't think there is. I think I have to find another spot. But anyway, that is there. And that's something I recommend if you're at all interested in that, in the English, in the English style. It's, it's a really nice, it's a really nice, I've got used to it as a morning thing, um, being over here. It's a very good forum for hearing the new repertoire that's being sung in Britain these days, hearing new music. And it's not always, you know, what, again, what I would call highfalutin stuff. It's uh, one of the broadcasts I did, one of the hymns was I Need Thee Every Hour. Mm -hmm. And the, the BBC said they never had so many letters about uh, a hymn hearing a cathedral choir sing, I need the every hour. Anyway, my 16 years as a cathedral musician were very tiring, they were challenging, they were poorly paid, and sometimes they were highly frustrating. But each time I was drawn back to the point of it all. God was worshipped with beauty and majesty by a group of boys in a beautiful architectural setting, in singing the most wonderful music uh, with beauty and majesty. And it was bound to rub off on them. And I'm very, I was, boast of the fact that uh, in Derry Cathedral in the last 20 years they've produced, I think, eight priests, and all of those eight priests were choristers. So it's, it's part of that education, it, it does 
come across. And you can do that without over evangelization as well. You just do that. Now, it can come across as very rarefied, and Westminster Abbey seems a long way from where we are. But I do think there are things we can learn. I also think there are things that the Brits can learn from the American experience, the, the enthusiasm, the theological thought that goes into a music program here are some things that just don't happen in Britain. Um, the pastoral aspects of the profession are often missing in England too, I find. It's not something that's, that's pushed on. Um, but I, I do hope just in that brief presentation, uh, I've given you a few insights in, into what is what's happening and some of the thinking behind it. And so it's a very different situation from the, the one we, we have here. Um, and it, it, it's something that I think, as I say, there are aspects of it which we can carry carry into our own situations. Um, so I hope that was I hope that was helpful. Have a question. Are there any questions? Yeah. Um, where, when did, where did the structure of like the cathedral worship come from, and why has it? Why do you think it's lasted as a tradition, whereas in America we've kind of morphed through the years? It, it arose um, the the original medieval monastic day. There were nine, I think it's nine services that the monks would sing, uh, starting at three in the morning and going on till. Conlin at six at night or whatever. It was every three hours. And there were nine services. And when the Church of England was, was created, because um, <clears throat> Henry VIII didn't really create the Church of England as such, because he thought and remained convinced that he was still Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. He just had taken control of the church from the Pope. In his head, he was still, he was still a Catholic king. The Pope excommunicated him, but that's enough. The whole complicated side of history. The Protestant Reformation then took hold in England, really following, I guess following that, Edward VI was was a boy king and was under his reign was a lot of the, the change. And Archbishop Cranmer formed the Book of Common Prayer. And the Book of Common Prayer created the service of Matins, which is morning prayer, which combined, I think, the, the first three of the services and then combined what was Vespers and Compline, which were the two evening offices, and Cranmer combined elements of both of those and created evening song. So it's, it's an ancient, 1549 was the Book of Common Prayer, and that was, uh, that was where the service came. The, the communion service was basically what was, was an English translation of the Roman Mass, um, with a few little tinkerings here and there. But basically that, that's, and that's the forms of service that have survived. And uh, the, re the uh, updates of the prayer book, the most recent, um, you know, the most recent one of the, in the Episcopal Church, is seventy-eight, but still will include the uh, still include the old form of Evensong, because all the music was written with that that Elizabethan language in mind. So it's a very ancient form, and I think I think that in itself, you know, it's the desire to keep that. And there's so much music written for it, and wonderful. those English cathedrals particularly. And there are churches here which are very fine physical traditions here. And, uh, say St. Thomas Fifth Avenue is the one. What do you think though about choirs of Episcopal churches or any but have the, you know, that have women? This music is so difficult, you know, for is. and then the, the non existent alto sound and then we have lots of rich alt you know, how, how much of it do you think is adaptable? Maybe you think all of well, it I is think, I think the danger is that we try to copy the sound, yeah, the and kill our women, yeah. And and I, um, I had a choir in one of the choirs I conducted here. Prided itself when I arrived on its very straight tone, and the first thing I told them was the vibrato is okay, and it was like I, um, you know, said something I shouldn't. There's cartoons of the man who ordered soup or ate soup with a spoon the wrong way. Um, I think, I think so long as the choir is true to itself and sings, sings with good singing, the music, the music is strong enough to, to carry that. Uh, it's difficult though, I think, particularly the sopranos, the tessitura yeah. just lies in the wrong part. It then it's so easy, on the wrong vowels particularly, yeah. for the, the boys ooze and you know, of course sopranos And I think there's, you know, there's, there's been a big debate in the, which I think has been settled 
Um, in the last 20 or so years, there's been a big debate about the sound that, you, that the boys make. Those of you that know the David Wilcox King's recordings will remember that very pure, almost cooey sound that the boys have. And, and, that, and that was going on at <coughs> King's College and up the road at St. John's College. George Guest was creating a sound that had lots of vibrato in it. And I think that more vibrato, the warmer sound, has, has won the day. And listening to some, some of the choirs now, there's a degree to which warmer sound and good technical singing. A lot of the cathedral choirs now have singing teachers who individually coach the boys. And that's a relatively new development. Um, the organists were, you know, thought, well, we, we can do that. That's, we don't need the help. And there's, there's a degree of that. And so I think things have modernized considerably. And I think, I think the boys' sound has matured. I mean, in Britain, they call it the continental sound. Because, you know, the, if you listen to the Regenfurler boys, some of those other choirs from Germany, for example, they sing it's a really warm, rich, fruity sound, which I think is gorgeous. And uh, what I call the coup. Uh, but David Wilcox, a lot of people try to copy that coup. That's not very great good singing technique because you sing it through a very short, a very small hole in the throat to create that sound. And so I say I think it requires true to itself. I've had very successful performances with, with mixed choirs. So, as you say, the line that's problematic is the outcome. Um, but I'm, I'm lucky enough in my current choir to have a countertenor who um, gives me a little edge to the sound, which is, is really helpful. Well, it's, yeah, sorry. Um, where, what, are there any resources like that compile all like the psalm singing and things? Because like, um, when you sing the psalm, is there a good resource to find that stuff? There, or? there is. There's a set of recordings. St. Paul's Cathedral recorded the whole Psalter about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think Hyperion is the label they're on. Um, and that's, that's about the best psalm singing I think that's on. Well, and the, to get the access to the music, is there? Oh, yes, a... you can find there are various collections of sorters. If you go, the Episcopal Church Publishing Company produces a sorter, which is very mm -hmm. useful in more modern translation. Uh, the Anglican chant, I didn't talk about the Anglican chant, but th those, th that's tradition of psalm singing. And there are various other sorters. Uh, there's a, one published by John Scott, which is used at St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, which is is equally as good. So there's plenty out there. Mm. Yeah, just look up a, a musical song. 